This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. On Money Talks, we discuss money news and take your questions about personal finance. For 15 years, we've provided free financial information for Mississippians. I hope you can join me, Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, co-host of Money Talks, Tuesdays at 9 a.m. or anytime on our podcast. From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts, the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Conservation biologist with the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, Tom Mann, is joining us today. We've had him on the show previously to discuss the migration of salamanders that struggle to survive crossing the Natchez Trace. And these salamanders, it's their time of year again. So we welcome him on today to discuss what he does to help these creatures. You can email animals at mpbonline.org. By the way, if you ever miss Creature Comforts on Thursdays, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning, Libby. Good to see you back in studio. Obviously, you're back here in Mississippi. Uh, what have you been seeing in your yard since you've gotten back? Good morning, Kevin. It's good to be back. And um, I guess right away, I have to mention cardinals and tufted tit mice, just the most common things in the world that um, don't occur in Oregon. So I don't see them on the West Coast. So I was delighted to get right back home and see them in my dry, dry yard. That was just almost pitiful. I, people had warned me enough that I knew that I was going to see that, but it's, uh, you know, we've got a gravel driveway, and it was pretty dusty, <laughs> And uh, but it was great to, to get there and see I did have birds. And um, I don't know if you'll remember um, last year, I want to say it was in the spring. I have to look back, but the little mockingbird that attacked the mm-hmm. windows and the mirrors and He's back. <laughs> he, w- he came back and seemed very excited to see us and went right over and started attacking my car window immediately, <laughs> my car mirrors. So we've hung his mirrors back up in the bushes, and we'll see if he goes back to those. Then I figure that's confirmation that it really is the same mockingbird. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I'm um, glad to be back in Mississippi. Oh, I had to go check for spiders, of course, to see what I had. Argiopes and um, the, the big brown um, uh, orb weavers and uh, my uh, golden golden thread golden threaded orb weavers as well. So um, I feel like all is well, and I'm getting settled back in. The Phoebe's I could hear the Phoebe's calling yesterday morning. You know, to me, the only silver lining of the drought was. I didn't have to mow the lawn as much this year because the grass was not alive to, to grow. So, yeah. <clears throat> I was you, kind of surprised the grass wasn't completely dead. It's tough stuff in my yard, evidently. Yeah, I have a couple of spots that apparently somehow got some water, and it's odd to see because you're right. You know, nine tenths of your yard is is dead grass, and then there's little tufts and pockets where the green grass uh, survived. So, uh, as he does each Thursday, Doctor Major joining us from his clinic. So, Dr. Major, um, we're cooling down here in Mississippi finally. What are some things that pet owners should remember heading into the cooler months, specifically about allergies? What do you do if a pet is affected by allergies? Good morning. Can you hear me? Yeah, a little bit muffled, but uh, we can hear you. I'm sorry. I probably pushed the wrong button. I tried to keep it in silence when the dogs went 
talking too much. Uh, allergies, yes. Uh, it's almost a year-round uh, situation, and some of the allergies are more intense in the fall. Uh, watery eyes, and a lot of that has to do with the dust that we've had, I think, that makes, makes it worse. Uh, fleas are still a real problem. We need to be cognizant of that. They don't go away. Uh, even here, uh, in the wintertime, you know, yet, but uh, I would suggest to think flea control year-round, uh, which is one of the biggest causes of what we consider an allergy or H-type replay. Uh, all of our animals can have some allergy-type things. A lot of times it's manifested with runny eyes, uh, maybe a sneezing, that sort of thing. But uh, that's kind of what we're seeing right now. So um, as the weather gets cooler, do pets naturally, does their coat thicken this time of year? It does, and I guess the question is, uh, we go into details as far as why uh, the hair coat thickens, but it has to do with certainly with daylight hours as the days start to get shorter. Certain breeds do develop a coat. Uh, I was amazed years ago when I was in Wisconsin, actually, in the service and had some association with some cattle producers uh, that we look at a Brahma here uh, and usually they're very slick and smooth but in the north they did develop some pretty hefty hair coats so things can change depending on the amount of sunlight and so the time of year all right, and then uh, finally, we're entering a part of year where it seems like we run from one sort of holiday you decorate for to the next, Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas. Give us uh, some tips, some reminders about um, keeping our pets safe when we start decorating for holiday seasons. Wow, that's a great thing. And here we are at Halloween. It's a month of time, but of course, we've seen Halloween decorations even here at our clinic uh, in the last couple of weeks. So thank you for getting geared up for that. Always be careful with uh, maybe not decorations to Halloween, but chocolates are abundant, and a lot of times they're left on a table or something like that for a get them. Certainly, we don't want consumption of uh, dark chocolate, especially, but all chocolate and other kinds of candies. As far as decorations, remember that. Uh, a lot of times the electrical cords are fair game for a dog or a cat to chew them. Uh, always avoid tinsel if you would. If you have cats, they tend to be fascinated with it and certainly can have a problem with digestion. Uh, the other thing, of course, thinking ahead towards Christmas, always be careful with anything that you put in the water where you have a Christmas tree holder or tree holder uh, that could be to to our animals. So those are just some things that come to mind. And then finally, one final uh, holiday-related thing. You know, obviously, trick-or-treat, Halloween, people coming to your door, strangers coming to your door, maybe ringing the doorbell. So if you have a pet who's kind of skittish, you want to plan in advance. Uh, we've talked about something like swaddling or a thunder shirt. Would that help on uh, a, a night like this where there might be a lot of activity in the front part of the house and maybe find a, a comfortable spot for your pet uh, out of harm's way, as it were? Well, 
I think it would be wise. A lot of a lot of dogs go ballistic when they hear the doorbell, for example. Uh, I would suggest maybe putting them in a part of the house where you have a kennel that you can put them in. Uh, certainly, uh, swaddling may help some dogs. Uh, that thunder shirt uh, works well for certain certain dogs. Others that they could care less. You know, they just think it's the latest fashion. Uh, you can, but. Uh, Certainly, uh, if you needed to uh, have a tranquilizer or something for some dogs, it might be wise, but probably best to put them in a different part of the house. And, you know, you've talked about crate training before, but the way I understand it, if you do that, that's really the space that the dog says, hey, this is my own. And so if it is something where there's going to be a lot of activity, kids coming and going and that sort of thing, if they have a crate, they might, that might help them relax knowing that they're in their special area. It's their own little hideaway or cave, and uh, a lot of dogs, I think, and cats. Uh, cats, not so much. Now, what happens to cats when you have company? Uh, a lot of times you don't see that cat until uh, the company leaves. Uh, they may be under the bed. They may be in a spare bedroom. They may be somewhere. But a lot of times they're difficult to find for several hours after you have company. So <laughs> other cats are very, uh, what shall I say, gregarious. And like the attention of people, but uh, I just be aware that uh, you know your animals, whether it's dogs or cats, and just take extra precautions when you have trick or treaters or uh, a lot of guests at home. Yeah, I think you hit upon the key there. Everyone knows what their pet's behavior is like and, and that sort of thing. So just be and aware of what's coming up and, and anticipate and to just make sure that uh, the pets enjoy the holiday season as much as we humans do. So this is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest for the hour is Tom Mann. We're talking about the salamander migration. If you want to join our conversation with your question or comment, you can always send us an email. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. So, Tom, good to have you back in studio with us. Um, why don't we start off the conversation by, if you could, if someone's never seen a salamander or knows what they're, they look like, uh, tell us a little bit about um, you know, their appearance, their size, and those sorts of things. Okay. <laughs> it's difficult to find a generalization that applies to all. The ones that we work with the trace have four legs and a tail. They have no scales. They're mainly out at night. Um, and mainly a moist, uh, a moist skin. Uh, they don't have scales again. The lizards have scales. We do see some lizards out at night on the trace. We get um, ground skinks, little brown guys with tiny little scales. They are, they are um, lizards. And a lot of folks confuse skinks, the general skinks, the blue tails, uh, uh, broadheads, five lines. They confuse those with their, because they're slick and shiny. They, they confuse those with salamanders. They are not. There are salamanders that are um, have only two legs, the front legs. There are some that have four tiny legs that are aquatic. So there's no one generalization going to fit. I don't. The ones that we work with the tracers are uh, four leg, and they're mainly brought at night. And how big are they? Well, let's see. Where's my picture here? <laughs> they can't see that. I'm going to say the the. the, the the ones we see around Christmas, the spotted salamanders will have t- bodies about as long as my hand. Um, the ones that are already moving, the marble salamanders, will be four or five inches long, maybe six inches long, and relatively heavy body. The little websters that Deb and I, my wife, Dr. Deborah Mann, retired from Millsaps, 
the ones that we work on are about roughly three inches long. Uh, very, very small, small body. You would not see them if you were looking for them if you're driving down the road. You can see the others if you were looking. You will not see this one, the, the earthworm size. So, yeah, Tom has some pictures that he brought in that we're looking at here in the studio, and it looks like, I'm guessing, that one of them might be called a spotted salamander. That's it. Those are, <laughs> and most, most of those are boldly sp- – and those are going to be moving across the trace, uh, heading toward their then-flooded breeding basins. They're, they're, as adults, they're strictly terrestrial. They live on land. They have lungs like we do. But when they, go to, they converge at breeding ponds, Mate, lay eggs, and then disperse again, cross the road both ways. Um, and that's going to be between Christmas and uh, mid-February. The larvae are, are aquatic. They have gills. They can be in there a few months. And when they come out, they'll disperse to the uplands as well um, and cross the road <laughs> again. So when I heard that you were going to be on the show again, my first thought was, gosh, how has this awful drought affected these salamanders? Okay, because good. Great question, and we, I'm glad you mentioned this. This is un, an unprecedented string of weather events. So we had we had the heat, we have had this unprecedentedly long drought. The ground is cracked. The trees were already stressed from the late from that March freeze. Even the native trees were stressed. Many native trees were stressed by that. If you park, as I have been in recent weeks uh, along the trace, I go out to pull non-native. Uh, Japanese stilt grass, stilt grass. It's Microstegium viminium. I pull it for a couple hours most days. It's taking over. It's really a problem. But when I go out and park along the road and get out of the car, everywhere what you see are caterpillar droppings along the road. They've been feasting on uh, stress, you know, frost, drought, and heat-stressed hardwoods. So the canopy is thin, thinner than it should be. It's really I, so. I can't long term. I don't know what's going to happen. With the March, uh, we had some March straight line winds. When the Delta was getting a tornado, we got we got close but not quite straight line winds. It knocked down a lot of trees along the trace, across the trace, and in my neighborhood. So it's this is a uh, but our our the salamanders that we have worked with, little Mar- the Webster's for all these for now twelve years. Uh, they've been underground, locked away under their um, in their little uh, Linden limestone refugia. It, we'll see. <laughs> they aren't up yet. Um, they usually up by now, but some years as late as November. So the ground just—I looked yesterday. The ground just cracked. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. They—they they avoid anything dry anyway. But so that's—that's that's one of the reasons I called Tom as soon as I got back because I was thinking, you know, what are these little guys so doing? But they, they I'm are, glad, I was glad to hear they weren't up yet. I think lo- that's the safest thing to do. They're underground to stay yeah. moist because that's the way they can—they can exchange gases. Um, so deep. we don't know how deep they are, but they're underground. Uh, I hope they're still moist enough. We'll see. Do we know if they have any sense of, hey, it's drier than it used to be, so I should stay underground where it's moist longer? Uh, I have not. We have not. Uh, we don't know that. Okay. Uh, they, they, usually, they usually come topside again for the winter or for the late fall winter. Uh, when the ground temperature is 60 or below, it's still above that, but we've seen them just above that before. But the leaf litter, they're, they're, there's nothing, they can't move without in a dry leaf litter. So, so I kind of jumped ahead there because, again, you know, you've been a guest on, and we've talked about this a, a, a couple of years. But for folks that might uh, be tuning in and kind of unfamiliar with what's going on here, tell, tell us what it is that you do that helps them, helps the salamander, I guess, in their life cycle. Okay. Well, the, all right. We started all this by it was obvious. He, we 
we drove out on a wet winter night so you could watch the big spotted salamanders cross the road, and we began taking those one side to the other and then backing them across back. So you're saving some lives that way. And we got permits from the good folks at the Natchez, uh, Natchez Trace. Um, I want to thank Deanna Bench in particular for permitting us to do all these things. And while we were doing that, we discovered this little, these tiny little salamanders in the road, which were not supposed to migrate, and we put them back on the side from which we thought they came because that's the side they would know. But you turn around, they're back in the road again. So after a year or two of that, it dawned on us that uh, something else was afoot. And we did some work, put the fences up, and we established this is a migratory species. They don't, they're strictly, this is Webster's. They're strictly terrestrial. They don't have to go to water to breed like the others do. They're dispersing from these areas where they, are, they spent the dry summer six months underground without feeding. And the females may be guarding eggs. The males just loafing, as far as we know. They come out as skinny as they can be. This year, I expect they're going to be skinnier than usual. But they fatten up quickly if the leaf litter works. We'll see what it does this year. Anyway, they disperse some outcrops, maybe 200 meters or so, and then they go back. Uh, they're going to disperse usually around Halloween, probably not this year. They're going to come back. In late February to mid-March, fat, full of eggs, and ready to go back underground. It's just amazing. So how did you first get uh, interested in, in what inspired you to start studying and helping salamanders? Oh, gee, I like a lot of stuff. But I mean, just, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm a hurt guy, but I like, I like spiders. I like lots of things. We like chipmunks. I like some. Uh, <laughs> um and we were out there, again, rescuing these this well-known spotted salamanders and discovered something else. And, again, this is cl- vent, uh, classic scientific method, observations, hypothesis, testing, analyzed results. So we've done that with the species, my wife and I, and we need to write something else out of it. <laughs> so you work on the Natchez Trace, and this specifically because there is that impediment to them getting from point A to point well, the, B? Yeah, the trace is not an impediment. It's just a danger zone. Again, what folks need to realize, this is true of all the migratory frogs and all, our, all of our amphibian species are migratory to, to, to some degree, moving from um, the upland habitats to the breeding habitats. So they're all, they're all moving distances like that. And they do none of these species recognize rotating vulcanized rubber as a threat. <laughs> they are not trying to make a perpendicular crossing of the road to be safe. They're not, they're not running fast. They're just doing a dead reckoning for where they're going. Maybe the pond they hatch from. In the case of Webster's, we don't know what, what, what uh, determines the vectors of dispersal, how far they go, or exact directions. But they mainly cross the road per- perpendicularly because they're moving from woods on one side to woods on the other. They like woods. So they don't like... They're, Open areas are a threat. But, it's so. helped them all these years that they migrate at night in the dark. I think at least they're not out there at five o'clock on the tr- on the Natchez Trace. <laughs> but but they've probably all been gone. But by now. having said that, with the time change again, all these animals are moving on. The, the marble salamanders and the spotted salamanders are mainly mainly moving when it's raining, uh, but they'll move when the road's just wet too. But they they need that moisture. Although those are uh, they have lungs like we do. The Websters are moving. They may move into clear skies. They want a wet substrate, so they want wet leaf litter on top. If the road is wet, they're going to cross then. So it's a little bit different, but they're all moving in wet conditions in the dark. And with the time change coming up, if that if rush hour coincides with that late afternoon rain, 
is going to be held to pay for the poor amphibians. Uh, okay, I mean, so drove they, sometimes died. they are out there at the can, wrong oh, time. Oh, yeah. They'll, yep. they'll, if the rain comes late at night, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, they may find that other rush hour to be a challenge. And I may be out there then as well. Most nights we work, we work with the Webster's, we're probably out there 40 to 45 nights a year between Halloween and mid-March, intercepting pulses, counting them on the fences, hicking them off across the road, and they come back. They can climb the fences, the little sill fences we put out. Folks can see those about a mile south of the interstate. They can climb those, but it delays them a little bit, so when we're out there, we can pick them up and carry them across in the four or five hours before midnight. And then they can climb when we're gone across in relative safety. But there's traffic out there all the time. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Today we're visiting with Tom Mann, and he's talking about the work that he does uh, with salamanders. If you have a question for Tom or a pet question for Dr. Major, or if you want to share something that you've seen recently when you've been out and about in Mississippi, give us a call. So, Tom, as you're assisting the salamanders across the Natchez Trace, do you try to do any sort of inventory to check on populations, or is there anything that you can do to them as you're assisting them across the road? Each one we move, most for the most part, each one is photographed. Usually individually, some, on a busy night, we, I, may, I may toss five or six into a, a um, for the folks that remember CD cases, we have a, a CD <laughs> case with a ruler taped across it, and I'll have a wet paper towel, and I'll put one, two, three, four, five, sometimes six squirming little salamanders in that, um, pop the paper towel on them, invert it, and take a picture of their bellies, because they all have distinctive... Uh, pigmentation patterns that, that throughout the life they have stable pigmentation so we can tell who's who we don't always have time to do that at some point we're going to tap into the, some folks that have done giraffe IDs with um, uh, the spotting patterns and they've looked at some of our preliminary data and said we can do that with these too so we'll do that for a year's worth of slides and determine that we're getting recaptures a high percentage of recaptures um, each year, heading out and heading back. So that'll be neat. One of the, uh, you may ask this later, we, there are natural marks other than those that we don't have to squint at. I have a picture here which the audience can't see of a fork tailed, it's a split tailed, split tip tailed um, male Webster's that we've now seen, we've seen as an adult for five years. And they're not, a, they have a minimum juvenile period of two years. So this one is a minimum approaching a seventh year. So this is a record. But seeing this kind of stuff at night, you've been staggering along that wet fence in the cool, and you find things like, oh, the one-eyed females that we've seen for years and years. Just it kind of warms your heart. You said, well, more little detail that they were seeing that no one else has ever seen, which is gratifying in itself. So the one-eyed, that's not an injury or something? That's... Oh, that would be an injury, okay. I'm guessing, of some sort. They don't, they're great at regenerating tails. They are not, they don't, as far as I know, they don't, these are not regenerating limbs that we can see. The spotted salamanders and marble salamanders do regenerate those. But these guys are regularly, and gals, regularly regenerate their tails. Most of them probably lose tails. This one has not. It's had that tail for five years, hmm. at least. All right, you're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Our guest today is Tom Mann from the Museum of Natural Science. More salamander chat in just a minute, but uh, Dr. Major, we do have a pet question coming for you. So let's go to Tyler Town. Zach has called in today. Good morning, Zach. Go ahead. Yes, I'm calling about uh, giving ivermectin to hunting dogs for heartworms, and I want to know the correct dosage uh, and uh, what's the dangers of giving them too much ivermectin. 
Well, this is a, a great question. I know a lot of hunters uh, with large numbers of dogs do use the ivermectin. Uh, you know, as a veterinarian, probably most veterinarians are not going to recommend it, but you're using it, and the basic dosage is 1 cc per 110 pounds. So you can gradually uh, figure that out for a 40-pound dog, obviously. Uh, too much can cause some... Uh, Side effects uh, could cause some uh, problems with uh, ability to uh, walk. Uh, could be, you know, basically, I would not go over that dosage. And uh, that's are you, how, how long have you been using it? Uh, ten years. Yeah. Different dogs. And you haven't um, you haven't seen you haven't seen any side effects with it. I wouldn't think. The good thing no, is if no. you give it, always give it. Uh, any heartworm preventative, give it the same time each month. It's very important to do that. Okay. Okay. Uh, and do you have a different recommendation than uh, the now? Well, you know, most of the heartworm preventives are uh, have an ivermectin-like product. They may vary. Uh, some of the most common ones that are used are hard guard. Uh, uh, your Semperica Trio does fleas, ticks, uh, intestinal worms, and prevents heartworms. So there's a whole host of uh, uh, medications that are used to prevent heartworms. The main thing is to do it, and I understand the economy of, of using ivermectin. It's not approved for use in dogs, and it's off-label, but... Uh, uh, a lot of a lot of hunters and mainly people with large numbers of dogs will use that. So be careful with your dosage. And uh, as far as other recommendations, to your veterinarian uh, certainly can give you other recommendations for that. I, that is that is so good. And thanks for thanks for the information. You take care. Thank you. Thanks, Zach. We appreciate you calling in this morning. Let's stay on the phone lines. <clears throat> Off to Boonville we go next. Kay is on the line. Good morning, Kay. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Thank you. Uh, at the beginning of the show, I turned in a little bit late, and, I, and the lady was saying something about um, spiders. I didn't catch all that comment, but I would like to ask her a question about spiders. Okay. Go, go ahead. Okay. Uh, I've noticed this summer that there's just not many spiders around i sometimes i'm out at night or nightfall when i'm feeding my horse and i have a flashlight and i could shine the flashlight on on my yard and pasture and just see thousands and thousands of spider eyes and this year i've seen very few did the freeze kill them i think it's a combination of the freeze and the drought Uh, if you think about um as dry as it's been, I feel like they've got to be less insects, and uh, you know, they're, they're not going to survive if they can't catch their insects every night. So that's, I would blame the freeze and the drought. Tom's over here wondering, because, but I guess yeah, I we, will say our, that there's always been a difference in years. Some years are great spider years, and some aren't. Our, our drought down in central Mississippi is much worse than anything they experienced up there. Uh, okay. we're, and I think the impact of that late season freeze was probably more harder to hear than up there as well. 
and I have never seen more spider eyes at night. I'm glad you do. And a lot of folks have not seen that. I think it's a neat thing. And again, it's very dry. Uh, wolf spiders are mainly underground and sheltered, whatever the freeze. So they're there. Uh, I have seen fewer of some species, but I see lots of others. In, in our drought-stricken, freeze-stressed woods, I'm seeing a lot of oil weavers at night, of many species. So I, I can't say other than they're still here, in spite of the weather. I'm not an expert. so I can tell I've had better years than what I'm seeing right now, but I've only been back for three days. So. I've seen bigger years with the spideybacks, but we're, we've got them. And again, I have never seen more oil weavers at night. The big neosconas, things like that. So, so to our caller, yeah. we we can't we can't answer. yeah we I can't give we you a, a definite answer. But no, well, um, I, it was just something that that um, I, I, I had no, noticed it even before we got the uh, drought. I mean, huh? I, I'm out you know every night or almost every night, and so Good I had you. noticed it you know the beginning of the year you know sometime after the freeze. And I kept wondering, well, why am I not seeing spider eyes? And then I thought, well, perhaps it is the freeze, and maybe you would know for sure Mm -hmm. or speculate on it like I did. And then, of course, the other thing to think about is have there been any changes in those woods other than that? No, nor nor in my my yard, my, my lawn either. Yeah, I think. Uh, oh, I miss them. Maybe they'll be back. Well, next good. Year. I hope so too. Scott, I hope Scott Payton back. is seeing fewer of the um, uh, the more tropical ones. The large um, nef- they used to be. Nef- they, they keep changing genera. Nephila, the, the uh, golden, golden orb weaver. He's seeing few, orb, many yeah. fewer of those. At the that could be freeze related as well. That's what. Uh, that's what um, I really noticed. That but, I only found one um, yeah, we, golden orb weaver. But this Do you been, have those at your house? The the um. To our caller, do you have the the ones that have a golden web, not silver, but a golden golden threads? In Very the web? large web. Yeah. I think I had one this year, and it was near my barn, and it stayed there for some time, but it's gone. Now. You had one yeah. more than I did, but we, yeah. this is our record year for the argiopes for the gardens. This is we've never seen more. So no, I had so, I didn't have as many as usual. Yeah. I, I we can't say. But I did have one right across the front door to greet me as I got there. I realized, okay, this is where they want to be when I'm not home, I guess. <laughs> All right, Kay, thanks for calling in this morning. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. So, um, Tom, how would you assess the, the salamander population in Mississippi? Is it healthy? Well, all right, I can speak only for <laughs> the ones <laughs> who we've been working on. Um, and those actually... Two or three years after we put the fences in for the tenor set webs, numbers surged. We had many more then than we do now. Uh, but after the numbers surged, then we they went back down again, and we suspect turkeys may be involved in that. We're not sure that's speculation, but we're, I'm confident turkeys eat lots of them, and, and I think in fact turkeys may be may be shaping the more the, the color patterns of this particular species. But that's all conjecture. We won't go any farther. But you asked how we're helping. We're trying to. Uh, clearly, the ones who helped across the road didn't die that night. Um, but we have a bunch, a, a number of folks now. I'm going to have to. I'm going to lose my track. Uh, the the Park Service, the uh, Federal Highway Administration, the Fish and Wildlife Service, um, a couple of private groups, um, USGS that are interested in in developing for the site some sort of uh, hard. Uh, uh, a combination of fence, intercept fencing, and conduits across the road. 
that will accommodate most of these species. And we may do some work on that this year. We may not, depending on budgeting and stuff. But we met and walked all these 15, 20 folks walked down the trace in March to talk about the challenges of doing something like this the next time they end up repaving the trace. So it may not happen this year. Part of it might. But, again, a couple of years when we do, when the trace is resurfaced, um, seriously, that we may incorporate. And that'll, that would be good. There's I could envision something almost like a um, cattle trough, kind of a, like, you know, where you have a, a if you had a, a, a little ditch across the road and need, then it was covered with something like a cattle guard. It, needs, it needs to be open to the atmosphere so yeah. they can see the sky and mm-hmm. so they can get there more. So that's key. So again, they're not trying to be safe. They don't know about safe. They're trying yeah. to get, they're just moving in the direction they're heading toward. And they don't want they don't want want to go into a black, dark, safe tunnel. They don't know about that. I mean, they come they come uh-huh. they come topside to make progress. There, all these animals live mainly in the leaf or underground, and that's they're coming up on the surface to cover ground. They want to cover it in a hurry. They don't want. So it's got to be they partially covered. Want, they don't want to go back top. into a hole. So it's <laughs> it's going to be a challenge. We will see. But we do have a number of folks looking at that now. Which but, is nice. But uh, do you currently have fences to where maybe herd them into a spot where they're easy for you to help them cross the No, trace? the fences are strictly there. I put fences there to slow them up for a few minutes while we're out there. And it slows them enough. So if we, if we have enough volunteers, sometimes I can do it by myself. But often it takes Debbie and me and maybe somebody else. And we've had, we had a good volunteer for years, Dr. Todd Sherwood, an ophthalmologist of all things, who uh, heard us on the show talking several years ago and came out and He's just been great. But we've had a number of great folks uh, for, uh, over the years. And we, again, the Deb or, or Todd would bring the salamanders to me. I would photograph them, and then we'd d- take them back out to the panel opposite the one they were captured on, on the opposite side of the road, far side of the fence. And that's been our process for years. We have tens of thousands of slides. It's just amazing. So, so again, so, go ahead. I was just going to say for our listeners, you are looking for – Volunteers. Yeah, we all we can always use a few good volunteers on a wet night uh, in the winter. And folks get all excited about this. They look at the pictures. They say, "Wow!" And then, but it's raining tonight. Yes, <laughs> that's it, it, sure enough. It is raining, and that's when they get to be moving. So, and uh, uh, I probably mispronounce your name, Doctor Jana 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 Tama at uh, MC has been organizing uh, Tribeta students to get extra credit for helping me pull invasive weeds in the daytime on warm Saturdays on the National Trace. So that's been, we. I have pulled, I spent about an hour to two to three hours each day for the past month and a half pulling this aggressive invasive weed, which is it's going gonna, it's gonna to dominate the ground cover. It may or may not affect these alimenters, I don't know. Turkeys won't like it. Deer don't eat it. Um, it's taking over. It's displacing native plants. So I've, I've spent a lot of time pulling that stuff up. So remind us, you primarily work with the spotted salamanders and then the little small ones are the Websters? Webster spots, and actually the ones that already moved this year are moving this year, Deb, and I got some last week, are the marble salamanders. Same genus as the big spots and do the same thing, except they're not laying their eggs in water. They're laying their eggs, they may lay their eggs on land in places that will flood later. If the land is already, if the ponds they go to are already, if the basins are flooded when they get there, that's bad for them. If the, if the basins don't flood 
within several months of the of the egg laying, then the eggs are going to drop. Female goes away. So it, the years are a challenge, and we have not had a good crop of those in two years for various reasons. Either those or the spots. We some years we get legions of both, but past two years, climate change is upon us. This is this is not good. It's um these are fairly long lived animals, but they're uh they need the breeding pool so. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest for this hour is Tom Mann from the Mississippi Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. So, Tom, I know you wanted to mention some genetic studies that you were doing, but one question before that. um, Are the salamanders found in all parts of the state or primarily here in central Mississippi? The ones that you work with? The ones that we work with are found. uh, The the Webster salamander is, is... in an arc with a big gap, and I'll explain that in a minute, from from Winston County, Winston and Choctaw, so that's east central, uh, down along from Yazoo County, Madison, south to uh, Louisiana, so along the Lussell Bluffs there. There are about 15, eh, 12 to 15 populations that we know of, highly, highly disjunct and highly um, localized between here in South Louisiana, then you have about that many populations in Winston County around Louisville, but the groups are they're, they're all they all have the same now right now. But we've done uh, Sheena Feist, who used to work at the museum as a geneticist, did extensive surveys on genetic surveys based on tail tips gathered by Deb and I here in Alabama and in South Carolina, and tail tips gathered by other researchers in Alabama and Georgia. And she said these are two different groups of animals. They've got the same name still, but they sort out two big groups. The ones, and the neat thing is, that, so that we're, we're working with the group we work with here, the group of Websters in, um, in, at the Trace. Those are the same guy, uh, guys and gals as occur from here down to Louisiana with this one population. And similar to the ones in Georgia and, and um, South Carolina. The ones in Winston County are like the ones in the Ridge and Valley province of Alabama and an outlier near uh, in southwest Alabama. That's a different group. She suspects they can be different species. They're, they've been uh, reproductively segregated for 5.3 million years, which is long before we, <laughs> we crossed the Atlantic in wooden boats or walked down the, the, um, uh, walked down the Bering Straits. So these these. Two units of Websters are discrete. I can tell them apart looking at them. Ask in So it's just neat. That's something special about Mississippi. And the ones in Winston County are more variable than anything we've seen in Alabama. It's just a neat thing. So that they're so we're special. We've got the most of the kind we have at, at uh, the, the subgroup at uh, the Trace. We've got the most populations of that that we know of, although they're still rare, highly disjunct. And we've got the most different-looking Websters in uh, Winston County. And uh, on the uh, that's the Legion State Park, a state park, and on the uh, Tom Bigby National Forest between Ackerman and Louisville, just neat, special. It's us. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We've got a couple of calls to get to here on the line, so let's start first with George, who says he's on his way to New Orleans. Good morning, George. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Hey, good morning. How are you doing this morning? Good. What do you have for us? Um. We've really been, my wife and I are traveling, and we've really been interested in, in what they're saying about the salamanders. And while, while he was talking, I had a question. I wondered what salamanders eat. So my wife Googled, and it, one of the things that salamanders eat are mosquitoes. 
And, of course, the question I've got is how in the world does a salamander catch a mosquito? Okay, that's a great question. Um, and you have to think about both life cycles. Uh, mosquitoes are hard to catch when they're flying around, but when they're larvae, when they're um, in the water, they're a great food source for a lot of developing animals. So, so, so the spotted yeah. salamander and the marble salamander are going to do their share of stuffing their stems themselves with mosquito larvae yes Webster's won't touch them right so <laughs> yeah so they yeah that's a in fact it would be a great biological control if there were more salamanders in every little puddle and pond and they can eat those larvae all right uh, george thanks for listening thanks for your call let's uh, stay on the phone lines next we're off to starkville william has called in today go ahead william you're on the air uh, yeah, I've got the inverse, reverse question. I, I grew up in uh, in Canada and had never even heard of a salamander. We lived on the banks of the biggest river flowing into the top of Lake, uh, Lake Erie. And I remember discovering to my total amazement when I was 12 years old, after the spring flood, all the pools that were left over along the uh, the rugged wilderness bank of the river between we're right in the middle of this of a town, but there were these p- pools, and they had these salamanders that were gee twelve or fifteen inches long and big big as a hoe handle or a, ha- a hammer ha- a hammer handle or oh, they're bigger than the hammer handle. I just wondered, uh, do I, did anybody ever eat them? I just wondered if they were edible. <laughs> The last question, what did they eat? But I wondered if anybody ate them. We eat frog's legs and, and rattlesnakes. I'm, I'm this time, and I'm, I'm, I'm guessing your species was some sort of mud puppy. I do not know that. I'm guessing that there are other salamanders up there, terrestrial and aquatic, um, and I don't know of anyone that eats them. Uh, there are the biggest salamanders in the world. Uh, are relatives of one, which is on my shirt here, the Cryptobranchus. Uh, Hellbenders in North Mississippi, the biggest, much larger than these, are some that live in Japan and in China. And whether folks eat those, I don't know. I'm guessing if they're still there, they don't. <laughs> but, I do, but I do not know that. <clears throat> All right, William, thanks for the call. You might have uh, set out the next culinary delight there, a salamander, oh. <laughs> fr- maybe deep-fried uh, deep salamanders, who knows, sautéed salamanders, we don't know. Uh, Tom, got a couple minutes left. Tell, talk about, if you would, some genetic studies that you've been doing. I thought we just did that. Okay. No, no it, was, <laughs> and it wasn't me. It was our colleague Sheena, former <laughs> colleague Sheena. Oh, I, I should not. I should Let me uh, do a word out. Uh, shout out to Millsaps again. Dr. Tori, uh, Corey Toyota at uh, Millsaps did the first genetic stuff based on tail tips that the Deb and I collected, uh, which clearly distinguish the animals in Winston County down here. Same species, but different. That was kind of neat. So, I want, so thanks to Millsaps for that work and Millsaps students. Is there anywhere else in Mississippi that has this type of situation where the, there's something that they've got to cross that's dangerous that folks oh, are Oh, sure. There? This is common. This is going to be common. Marble salamanders and spotted salamanders are common species. And most of our conspecifics, that's us, are oblivious when they're on a wet nights going from point A to point B as quickly as they can. So the folks that are driving the trace at night are not tourists looking to see anything. <laughs> they're just getting from point A to point B kind of fast. And but that's that same situation. Not you're not gonna. There are, I can't. 
There's another Webster's population along the trace down near Rocky Springs. Nowhere near so much traffic there. But this is, but this road conflict with uh, salamanders, particularly with the ambistimas, it's it's um, the ones that regularly cross to find breeding spots and go back again. This is common, and there are groups that um, do what they can. There are other groups, mainly in the Northeast, that marshal. Uh, bucket brigades to rescue them or they may get roads closed down at night during the season. We have a longer season than most. This is not a one night deal here. This is a multiple night deal. Um, multiple, okay. multiple nights. Got about 30 seconds. I'm going to put you on the spot a bit. Oh. How, how did you come up with the buckets? I mean, how, give us a quick... Well, it's uh, not buckets, it's scoops. All right. Plastic well, scoops. But he calls brigade, it a bucket, bucket brigade. Right. Yeah. Well, I didn't invent the term bucket brigade, but we have plastic scoops, uh, polypropylene plastic scoops. And that we, was just the easiest way to, to scoop used, them up? We've, yes, and we've used those for years. Uh, we herd them into that and carry them across. Um, or on the or poke them off the fence and carry them across. And sometimes they're evasive. It's not always. It's not as easy as it sounds. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, <laughs> with funding provided in part by listeners. To hear today's show or a previous show, you can visit creaturecomforts.mpbonline.org. Our show is produced by Abram Nanny. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest Tom Mann, I'm Kevin Farrell. Inviting you to stay tuned because up next at ten, it's autocorrect. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.